So even as our kids leave, I want to say I'm reminded of a story that happened just a few weeks ago. Now, my wife and I had this opportunity to take care of two little girls uh, that are part of this church, Eliza and Eden Kreitz. And if you haven't had the chance to meet Eliza and Eden, I'll describe them briefly. Eliza is four years old, and she's very astute. She always asks you a really piercing question. And then Eden is just really, really lively. <laughs> and she's two. And so we're babysitting Eliza and Eden. It's the end of the night, and it's their bedtime. But then they say, then Eden says, very excitingly, excited, she says, one more story. I want to hear one more story. And you might not know me, but I don't have a reputation even amongst the kids of being very obliging. So I go up to them and I say, no, you're good. It's bedtime. Good night. Uh, but my wife was there, thankfully, and she is a much better caretaker. She's more nurturing than I am. And she goes up to the girls and she says, okay, I'll tell you one more story. And so Eliza enthusiastically requests the story of Snow White. And Grace, from memory, begins to tell this story. She says, it's a story of an envious queen, of this beautiful girl, this magic mirror. And she's telling this from memory. And she soon realizes some parts of this story will actually be really hard for the girls to understand. Now, early on in the story, the queen, this evil queen who is envious of Snow White, hires a huntsman to kill Snow White because she's so jealous. So when Grace gets to this point of the story, she looks at the girls and she says, now the huntsman took Snow White into the woods so that he could take care of her. <laughs> and Eliza, remember, she's the really astute one. She says, what does that mean? And Grace says, well, that means that he was supposed to get rid of her. And Eliza says, how would, she do, how would he do that? And so eventually Grace has to fess up and just say, well, Eliza, the huntsman was supposed to kill Snow White. And then the next line is it's pretty surprising. Eliza just, uh, Eliza just says, oh, okay, what happens next? <laughs> and so when I heard this story, I laughed at first because, well, there's this very real possibility that the next time that Sarah and Aaron Kreitz decide to take care of someone, um, the, their daughters will be really confused. But then there's also a really surprising fact that when Eliza heard what it meant to take care of someone, specifically what it meant that they would have to, that the Snow White would have to die, she wasn't shocked. I imagine this is because she didn't fully understand what it meant for someone to die. Specifically in the context of a fairy tale, she didn't think it was very important. Now that's true. In a fairy tale, where you tell these to young children as they're about to go to sleep, death really isn't that important. It's a plot device. It's something that moves the story along. It's something that brings a conclusion. But how often do we, as either children or as adults, read the Bible just like it's that sort of story, where we might get some information out of it, some morals, even some entertainment, but ultimately, we read the story outside of its proper context, and very importantly, we read it without the working of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't understand what God is trying to tell us. That all of us, I think this is true for all of us, as members of a very fallen, as a sinful and limited human race, 
we do not understand God perfectly. And this, in this respect, we are a lot like children listening to a bedtime story. And this is tragic because what's at stake in the Bible really is life and death. But know this and see and hear this today. God has worked throughout history to make himself known. He does this in the Bible. He does this in the story in the life of Abraham and specifically in the story that we're going to read today. God prepares the hearer to hear a future story of a greater sacrifice. So today's scripture comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 22. If you have a pew Bible, uh, that is on page 16. And as you turn there, just remember, we covered this story a while ago, but remember from context that in the story and life of Abraham, Isaac is given to him as this miraculous child, someone delivered uh, when Sarah and Abraham are, it's impossible for them to conceive naturally. And we hear this story not just because it is something that happened. Indeed, it's something that happened. But it's something preserved for us by God so that we would understand something about God, not just about Abraham. This is something that is true. And perhaps that's a chief difference of how we read the Bible and how we read other stories. This is something that is true. So here from the book of Genesis... The truth of God preserved by him. We're only going to cover verses 9 through 14 this morning, but for the sake of context, I will begin in verse 1, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the in his hand, the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order And bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord came to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we hear the story of Abraham and Isaac today, we pray that you would open our eyes to see in our hearts understand you, 
In Jesus' name we pray this, amen. Again, as a bit of context, just to go back, we covered the first part of this chapter a few months ago, and as we tackled that, we discussed a lot about the life of Abraham. We saw that in, the, in chapter 22, Abraham displays this faith that is commendable. That through the, and through the words of the author of Hebrews, we learn something about Abraham and something about his faith. That he trusted God because he believed that God would be capable of raising Isaac from the dead. So even if he were to sacrifice his son, God being God, would be able to resurrect Isaac from the dead. And this is why he was willing to obey God, but we also want to make a point that Abraham was in no way a perfect man. His life was a life where he was corrected by God and guided by God in many ways. There are many instances where Abraham is shown to fall short of being perfect, far, far short. So why is the story of Abraham great? Why was his faith great? His faith was great because God was great. God was capable of raising Isaac from the dead. Abraham believed that and was willing to respond in faith. And then we pick up here in verse 9, in the first section where we begin this morning, with some themes that were in that previous passage. And to begin, we, we want to start with probably the greatest misunderstanding that surrounds this story. It's a story about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, his son. And so often we want to ask, the immediate response is, isn't this a very cruel thing to do? Isn't God in this chapter a cruel God? But we should see, again from the text, that God is in no way cruel, but in fact, he justly tests Abraham. And in a more general sense, the first point that we see from the passage is that God justly tests us. Let's look again at verses 9 and 10. And as we heard in the first eight verses of the chapter, the stage is being set. Something very, very gruesome and heart-wrenching and what some would describe as cruel is about to happen. By verse 9, the stage is set for a ritual sacrifice. Abraham is about to kill and then burn his son Isaac, his only son, whom he loves. Abraham took his son, his only son, who he loved, and he bound him. He placed him on the altar that he had built with his own hands, with wood that he had chopped, and with his own hands, he took a fire that was about to consume this body. And then in verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand to slaughter his son. Let's be clear about what's happening here. This is a situation of life and death, where death is merely moments away, and it is intense, and even though we don't have a great deal of a description about what's going on in the minds and the heart of Abraham specifically, and also Isaac, we have no doubt that it is a difficult time. Some of us here are fathers, many of us here are sons, but I think everybody here can understand just as a human being that this is a very, very difficult thing. That for a father to kill his son is something that is intense. One commentator described this as the climax of Abraham's life. If you remember, throughout Abraham's entire life, he's promised a son, and here he is, about to kill that son. Because God demanded it. But this situation, though very intense, 
is not unjust. Why is it not unjust? Well, it might be difficult to hear, especially if trials come in this form, but God is not ever unjust in testing us, for he never demands what is not his. Now, people often demand what, what is not their own. Uh, my mind jumps to the example of children again, where if you have any opportunity to interact with children, you'll see the sort of behavior where someone claims something that is not their own. Uh, now, members of Redeemer Church have the privilege of serving upstairs often in our children's ministry or with the kids that left just now. And I'll say from my own experience up there that it takes about 10 seconds for a kid to decide that something that is given to them temporarily is their own. You can stand up there, um, watch a child take a toy from a basket, and suddenly that's theirs. And if someone tries to take that away, whether that be a kid or an adult, the answer is no, or very often it is no. And then that's followed with screaming and crying, all because... All because the child thinks that that is their own. And very specifically up there, none of those toys belong to those kids. Maybe at one time, but they've been donated. They're the church's toys. They don't belong to any of the kids. So when you claim it as your own, it's ridiculous. But we do this too. We claim our things as our own. But they're not. We should see this in light of what is God's instead. God is not a child who demands another kid's toys with shouts and cries, but God is the creator, the sustainer of all things. And we should know that Abraham learned this the hard way. Again, Abraham was promised in his life. From the very beginning, when he's called out in chapter 12 of Genesis, that God will make him a great nation. And in order for that to happen, God had to provide him a son to continue his line. So what happens in Abraham's life? Well, he tries to do this his own way. He tries to save his skin because he recognizes that, man, if I die, I'm not going to be able to have a son because it's within my power. He does this with Hagar and takes Hagar as a concubine and has Ishmael. Well, this is the way that people have children. So I have to provide for myself a son so I can continue my line. But God is very clear throughout Abraham's life. No, the provision of a son will happen through me and it will happen miraculously. None of it will be due to you. It's only in chapter 21 where Abraham is finally granted the son miraculously. For Abraham and Sarah were far too old to have children themselves. But what does God do? God gives Abraham his son Isaac. And then what does God do in Genesis 22? He demands Isaac. It's not unjust for God to demand what is his. It might be difficult. And if we read this the right way and apply this to our lives, it might be terrifying. Because for us, as people that are, in many respects, not too different from Abraham, trying to do things our own way, we recognize that before God, who created all things and sustains all things, there is, in fact, nothing that we can call our own. And we might be scared that at some point, the God who made all things might demand all things from us. And that is a just thing. God is not cruel to ask of us what he has given. And we might be terrified because our theology says, yes, God made all things. But our lives don't often reflect that God is right to take things away from us. 
And in these trials, we might think that God is cruel. But in fact, there is no basis for us to think that he is cruel. First off, because it is just. And second off, because as the rest of the passage demonstrates, God is, in fact, very kind to us. For we have no reason to fear God or hate God or doubt God. His intention for us is not to harm us. His intention for Abraham was not to harm him. Uh, Verses 11 through 12, if you read with me, we'll see that God is not evil. He is not cruel, but he is kind. And while he is just to demand sacrifice from us because he made all things and gives all things, he's also kind to deliver his people. See in the next two verses, 11 and 12, that God kindly spares us. Now, as Abraham is about to kill his son, an angel of the Lord says, stays his hand. He stops him. And he states, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Pause for a moment. Exhale. Exhale with Abraham and say, this is a great thing. What a relief. Isaac is spared, and the father does not have to kill his son. But then your mind probably jumps and says, well, why did this happen at all? Why did this happen in the first place? Well, the angel continues to give us a bit of explanation. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now God tests Abraham in this way to prove Abraham's faith. But it might seem strange to us reading this story and then having some knowledge about God that he would do these things because we state again with our beliefs that God knows all things. So didn't he know that this would happen? Why put a father through this sort of trial and distress? And why would he stop it last minute? Well, this is a theme that appears later on in the chapter. I'm not going to cover it fully here, but it's important for us to understand right now that God's test is not a pointless gesture. In fact, when God tests us, it's never a pointless gesture. For Abraham and for us, God tests us to let us know something so that we will understand his justice, his forbearance, and his kindness right here. This is a test with a purpose. God already knew what would happen, but he arranged this chest just like he arranged all of Abraham's life so that Abraham would respond in faith and know who God is. He worked this test out and he accomplished this so that Abraham would come to know and believe in God. Um, a few months ago, Jim preached through the book of Second Peter, and we got to hear a little bit also about Abraham's life. There's a story where many people might already know this story, where God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroys those two cities. But what happens in Abraham's life right before that? Well, Abraham is told of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah beforehand. And he pleads with God. He pleads in this specific way. In chapter 18 of Genesis, Abraham tries to intercede for the city, asking God to spare the city for the sake of a few righteous people. And it's very interesting to read because it actually starts off saying, uh, you see this negotiation as if Abraham has some sort of right to negotiate with God. He still does it, and, and God is gracious enough to listen. He says, God, for the sake of 50 righteous people, would you spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, yes, I would, for the sake of 50 righteous. But then it goes on. Well, what about for the sake of 40? For 40 righteous people, would you you spare this city? 
God says, yes, I would spare the city for the sake of 40. And what about for 30? Or for 20? Or for 10? Each time God shows that he is gracious, that indeed for the sake of a few righteous, he would spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And ultimately, the city, there are not 10 righteous people found, but God is still gracious there in sparing Lot. So what does God, or what does Abraham learn about God in that situation? Well, God is gracious. Indeed, he spares for the sake of the righteous. What does Abraham learn from chapter 22? This, where we find ourselves right now, well, there's another lesson here about God's graciousness. It's a really difficult one. Because in chapter 22, Abraham learns this lesson, that even the child of promise, remember, there's a climax of his life, everything that he has sought his entire life, even that child, Isaac, his only son, whom he loved, was not something that he could withhold from God. And that realization probably wasn't completely known to Abraham until he held the knife above his son. And in that realization, the voice in verse 11 is all the more sweet Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Abraham should understand this ex- through this experience that God is gracious. He spared his son Isaac. And then there's one more thing, at least one more thing, that Abraham should have learned through this trial, a great understanding that points to something greater. The cost of a father sacrificing his son is great. It is a difficult thing. It is immense, that sacrifice. As we approach the last section of this passage for today, see that there is something glimpsed here that is very, very exciting. Remember, part of the, part of the main point for this sermon when we started was that God has worked throughout history to make himself known. Now, how has he done this? Well, through the story of Abraham, he's done this by preparing Abraham and preparing us to hear about a greater sacrifice. And we need to understand that, that at the right time, the Father would send a greater sacrifice. See, in the final section, the third point for this message, God always provides for us. He provides for us a greater sacrifice. Now, the full story of the Bible, if you remember, if you were turning to the pages in the Pew Bibles, we're on page 16. The full story of the Bible is not known to Abraham right now. It's not revealed to him. But even on page 16 of the Pew Bible, Abraham, who does not know the rest of the Bible, declares for us some eternal truths worthy of re- repeating. I'm going to read beginning in verse 13 if you want to follow along. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Indeed, it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The sacrifice offered here, indeed every sacrifice made since the Garden of Eden where God killed animals to cover Adam and Eve. Every sacrifice since then has pointed to something greater. 
in Leviticus, when the code, the moral code is given, the laws that um, Israel must partake in is given by Moses, we hear a little bit about the explanation for why sacrifices have to happen. Leviticus eleven seventeen says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. So we see that the sacrificial system, even in the Old Testament, even very early on, points to something that covers sins. And countless animals are killed in the Old Testament. They are killed and they are halved. Well, many of them, depending on the purpose, were halved and then burned by the Jews because they were trying to make atonement for their sins. Only through death is there atonement. These sacrifices are part of the Old Covenant, but as the Bible points us to, even as we read today, as Caleb read in Psalm 50, there's something about the sacrificial system that is not complete. There are limitations. In Psalm 50, just to remind us, we see that there is a perfect and holy God who is right to judge us, not just to test us, but to judge us. And before him is a devouring fire, a tempest. This is not a judgment we want to enter. And before his people, Israel, those that enter this covenant through sacrifices, um, he presents this. He states to them that the sacrifices are there for a reason. It's not that you offer animals and suddenly you're, you're right before God. It's not automatic. It's not like, I did this, therefore I am right before God. All the animals belong to him. <laughs> he knows all the bulls and the birds of the, of the hills and the air. They're already his. So what's the point of the sacrifice? Well, it's that Israel's supposed to learn something about God. That they're supposed to call upon God. And in their distress, God will save them. But it's not the sacrifice alone that does that. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. The author of Hebrews states in Hebrews 10.4 a little more explanation about this when he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Indeed, that's true. Since the fall, there has always been a need for a greater sacrifice. Adam and Eve needed a greater sacrifice the animals that were killed for them to cover their nakedness. Israel needed a greater sacrifice than countless bulls and goats to make them right before God. In Abraham's trial, the sacrifice of Isaac points to a greater sacrifice, prepares Israel to hear the form of this greater sacrifice, even though it's only whispered here, even though there's only a hint, but it's a hint of something great, something gracious, something kind. It's a whisper of the gospel. What does it say at the end of verse 13? Abraham took the ram, the ram provided by God, and he sacrificed it. Why did he sacrifice that ram? He sacrificed it instead of his son. I think it's the point of the text here, when you say instead of his son, that the author is saying something had to die on the mount that day. There still needed to be a sacrifice. And God, in his great love, provided that sacrifice, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns so that Isaac did not have to die. And in church terminology, I know sometimes we shy away from church terminology because it's not immediately accessible, but in church terminology, there is a great term for this, and we should learn it, and we should rejoice in it. It's called substitutionary 
atonement. Remember, only through the blood is there atonement for sins. So do you want that to be your blood or someone else's? For the Israelites, the blood of goats and bulls served as something to prepare them to understand what substitutionary atonement meant. That, for the, that one would be judged, that a bull or a goat would be killed and burned so that they could be graciously spared. For through that blood, there was atonement. But remember, that was limited. So what do we, how do we hear and understand this now as people who are not Israelites? They're not, well, we are Israelites, but we're not Jews. We're not Hebrews by culture. How do we understand that now as people who know more or beyond page 16 of the Pew Bible? So we should, I think, look at that last verse, verse 14, and understand something about God's provision for us that the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Indeed it has. On that day he provided a ram so that Isaac would not have to die. But God provides a greater sacrifice for us. And the mystery of it and the power of it and the love of it is how we describe the gospel. And that's this. That on the mount of the Lord... God provided that greater sacrifice for sinners, his son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That's not a mystery anymore. You've already heard that name. Jesus Christ is the greater sacrifice. And that God's provision has been made known to us that it is his son, Jesus Christ, that gives us that substitutionary atonement for those who follow in faith. This is the once and for all sacrifice made for his people, the perfect lamb of God, crucified on the mount with his head caught in a crown of thorns. He died for us according to the plan of God. We read from Hebrews 10 before. I'm going to continue in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 5. Now when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as written of me in the scroll of your book. And when he said above, You have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we all... And by that will, we have all been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest who stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ did not only die as a sacrifice, he also rose. For this is the gospel, that in his death there is forgiveness for sin, and in his resurrection there is victory over sin, in God's promise there is the Holy Spirit for all who believe. In God's time there is the return of Christ and the just judgment of all creation. But for all those who believe in Christ through faith, they will be graciously spared. How do we respond to this? 
Well, we should rejoice. That's a pretty unusual way to respond to a story about sacrifice, especially a father killing his son. But we've heard more about it now. We've heard the full gospel now. And we should rejoice and be happy that, remember, God has worked throughout all of history so that we might know him. And God has worked throughout all of history, and we find ourselves at this point in history so that we might understand that in the personal work of Jesus Christ. For the gospel is so wide and so deep that it occurs not only throughout history, but it is the purpose of history. And God worked in this way so that we would understand. So what do we do? We rejoice and we respond with blessing. For blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us what? The mystery of his will. And for what purpose? A purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the plan of God presented to us in the perfect word of God and the unified word of God, the life-giving word of God. So how should one read scripture, especially the Old Testament? I was reading this past week a post about a pastor was writing about people that he interacts with, and he says, far too often, Christians, even Christians, so probably especially those that have no Bible knowledge, don't have much appreciation for the Old Testament. And why is that? I think it's because we read it just like another story. We search for understanding in our own way, and when we don't find that, we look for entertainment or information or some sort of morality. But know this and see this, that the Old Testament indeed is preparing us to hear about the gospel. It's the same message. It's still Christ. It's not revealed as fully, but in Christ we do have it revealed. There is a veil that covers the Old Testament, but that is removed in Christ. For what does 2 Corinthians say? It says, but the minds of those who read the Old Testament are, is hardened. For to this day, when they read that Old Covenant, the veil remains unlifted, only through Christ can it be taken away. For those that have not yet believed this gospel, why is that? Is it because of the same reasons? Because we don't understand it. Because it is strange to us. Because God has not made himself known through a pillar of smoke and fire, or by writing on the wall, or from a booming voice in the sky. Well, you should know that God had made himself known in the past in that way, but it is a far, far better thing to know God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The story of Abraham and Isaac is indeed a story that I imagine most of us had heard at one point. But perhaps it's not a story that we understand. For why did God demand that a man sacrifice his son? Well, so that both Abraham and, the, so both Abraham and us now, hearing it today, 
would be prepared to hear the story of God who sacrificed his son, a God who is just and gracious and has always provided that greater sacrifice, Christ Jesus. This is the unity and the power and the majesty and the graciousness of God to fulfill the plan that he has set for his people. Let us never read another story in the Bible like it is just one more story, but seek Christ in it, Christ our Savior and our God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your scripture, all of it. We pray that the Spirit would work in us so that we would understand it, that we would see Christ and how the, all of scripture points towards Christ. Please work that within our hearts today and give us hearts to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.